You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. What's going on, everybody? Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. Guys, I appreciate everybody tuning into this this show. It's been a it's been a real success here so far. I want to continue to see it grow. Uh, tell your friends, share things on social media. Um, I, I hate having to beg you, but I really it really does wonders. You know, it's been so amazing to see the connections that we've made with people and seeing that this podcast is growing and has uh, is is gaining some traction. It's just something that's really something I really appreciate. And if you wouldn't mind, if you haven't already, wherever you guys listen to podcasts, whether that's Spotify, iTunes, or Google Play, give us a review, you know, like us, uh, check us out on social media on Instagram and Facebook at Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. Guys, leave a comment, send us a message, let us know how we're doing. We would really, really appreciate that. Now, I am, of course, we're, we're, we're at the point where we can smell the beginning of archery season. As this episode airs, tomorrow is opening day of the early archery season, 2B, 5C, and 5D. So, guys, if you're hitting the woods, good luck. Stay safe. 
wear your safety harness and shoot straight. And I hope all your preparations are uh, are coming are are coming to this very moment where you get to enjoy 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 the deer woods. I am just looking forward to it so much. I had an interesting thing happen to me this past week. So I typically will go through my crop fields for my growers this time of year and kind of just do general yield assessments and give growers an idea of, okay, what, uh, what's looking good, what's looking average, what's looking below average, and kind of just making sure that we don't have any like last minute like oh crap moments you know the last thing i would hate to have is you know you look at fields and we finish our applications and then you wait a month or two and then you go to harvest that crop and something catastrophic happened like a late season disease or bad deer pressure or something or whatever so i I want everybody to not be surprised when they go to bring that combine through to cut that corn or that bean field or whatever and uh, I was in a cornfield. I walked into this cornfield, and I might have been in like 30, 40 yards, and I'm, I'm pulling some ears. I'm doing some, some yield and some grain checks, and I hear, oh, oh. I'm like, what the heck? I'm like, that sounded like a bear. So I yelled at it. I'm like, yo, get out of here. A little bit of time went by, and I hear, oh, oh. closer. And I was like, that's a stinking bear. So I like went into like ninja mode. I'm I'm kneeling down because the corn leaves like above the ears of the corn are sprayed out across the rows and it's so thick I can't see. And I'm like, if there's a sow with cubs in this cornfield and I'm in between them, like I at least want to see her coming if she's going to attack me. So I'm like backing up slowly watching and I finally just got to a point where my adrenaline got the best of me and I just turned around and booked it out of the cornfield and it was like uh, I don't know it was only like a 30 or 40 yard run I got out of the cornfield and of course my reaction I called the farmer and he's like I said has anybody seen bear up in this neck of the woods this year I know you have in the past and he goes well I haven't heard anything why and I told him the story what happened and he goes well that would make sense why that corn looks so good if there's a bear in there the last time there was a bear in there he kept the deer out of it and we had a pretty good yield I was like huh, that's interesting but you know that same day I was driving to another farm and I, I saw another bear right alongside the road kind of going between a chop off and, you know, some other cornfields. And one thing I really noticed uh, in the past, I don't know, five, six years, I have not seen a ton of bear damage in corn. I see it, but this year with it being so dry, I'm seeing a lot of really early bear damage. Uh, I was seeing it the last week of August already. I was walking into cornfields and finding rolls and places where they were just laying and feeding. And I, I'd be curious what anybody else's thoughts are, but my theory is when you have a dry spell like that, native vegetation does a really, really good job of conserving moisture and it'll pull moisture back into the roots and makes a lot of the, the native vegetation not quite as palatable for anything that's omnivorous or herbivorous. And with, uh, with a cornfield, you know, we manage a cornfield to have no competition. It is just corn in that field. We've got high fertility and an annual plant like that. It's got one chance to produce grain. It is going to do everything in its power to push energy to filling grain. And any available moisture that it's going to have, it's going to be in the stalk of that plant. It's going to be pushed into the ear. So the best possible moisture is down in those bottoms in those cornfields. And, you know, 
that and it's right along some of the riverbanks where I was seeing these this deer uh, yeah this deer this bear damage and just an interesting observation uh, it's it's earlier I don't know what's to come of it but it's definitely steered me a little bit differently when I'm thinking about bear scouting here I, I, I recently gained permission on a 30 acre property that is on a mountain but it's between it it's smack dab in the middle between a big block of corn to the north and a block of corn to the south and then in between the corn uh, between the property and the corn to the north there's a very very large beaver dam swamp so it's like everything about it just says I gotta check this property out I have no idea what it looks like I've never stepped foot in it but I'm hopeful that I can take a walk sometime this month during September and check that out because it might provide a really good opportunity to archery bear hunt which I've been saying for for so long I would love that opportunity to connect on one with a bow and you know any advantage from food perspective and, and corn I mean why wouldn't you uh, it just seems like a no-brainer but uh, I'm definitely itching for whitetails I've been shooting my bow as much as possible I'm still I'm shooting broadheads. I'm trying to shoot broadheads as religiously as possible. I, I shoot my broadheads out to, you know, 70, 80 yards and just making sure that if I have good, tight groups for for my own shooting at that distance and I can do it with broadheads, then that is all the confidence in the world to cut that distance in half and do it at 40 yards where, you know, that might be the top end, 40 to you know, 45, 50 yards in my shooting at, at a whitetail. You know, I'm, I'm always planning for 20 yard shots. I've been, I've been practicing sitting down, you know, I do some hunting in ground blinds and, and box blinds and stuff like that. And I've been trying to get some reps sitting down, replicating that. And for whatever reason, I'm, I'm struggling. I can't figure out why or how I'm, I'm holding my bow and I'm not able to hold a steady. I don't know if I'm using muscles improperly or if it's <clears throat> if I'm just using some muscles that aren't getting used the same when you're standing up. I, I'm not sure, but it like the other day I was like, "What the heck is going on?" So I'm trying to work through that and uh, and still execute good shots in in hunting situations. And probably the last week or two, I've said this before, the last week or two, when I, I make sure I've got all my broadheads. Uh, sharpened in my quiver ready to go and I, I've gone from shooting reps after reps after reps I try to replicate hunting situations in my practice and what I do is I'll literally just shoot one arrow I'll go out maybe in the morning before work I'll knock an arrow I'll pick a distance one of my targets on my range and I shoot that arrow and that's all I shoot and then I'll go inside hang my bow up go to work I might come home and repeat it you know however many times a day but one arrow at a time and what I usually do then is let's say I have four arrows and I shoot those arrows I'll shoot them at the same target but I'll shoot them it might take me two days to shoot those four arrows when I go up and pull them I'm really assessing what does that group look like because those first shots are going to be your most important shots and I've already seen I've already had this happen to me where my first shot groups might have just been a hair to the left of where I was aiming and I, I, I might make a slight sight adjustment based on those first shots if if the group tells me to most of the time that doesn't happen but it, it has happened for me and those one shot arrows I mean they're really important because 
you know, I'm as guilty as this. You know, I posted a picture the other day on Instagram of, of like one of the best groups I've had in a long time, maybe ever at like a hundred yards. And you guys are seeing like eight arrows at a hundred yards. And it was, of course, like how many reps did I have in to get to that? And it was the best of the best that you're looking at. And that's cool. That's what I was working towards. But at the end of the day, the only arrow that really counts is the first one. And that's what I'm I'm trying my hardest to work at. So that's kind of where I'm at in the, the next two weeks in my shooting. And I'm just hoping for a good opportunity opening night. It is getting here. It is getting close. So, you know, this week we have an episode. We had a conversation with Matt Zernsack from The Push Archery. And it is a great conversation. It's well-rounded from traditional archery, Matt's introduction into that, how he got into the push and making films and the YouTube channel. We talk about how, how traditional archery shooting can take place. We talk about equipment, uh, aiming. We talk about a lot of shot execution stuff back and forth between traditional archery and compound archery. Then we get into some general bow hunting discussion in Pennsylvania and just it's a real well-rounded conversation about Pennsylvania bow hunting geared towards recurves and longbows. And uh, Matt is Matt is a killer. He is a, a deer hunting fool. So as as we air this episode, I'm sure tomorrow he's going to be out and trying to do his darndest to lay some deer down and put some meat in his freezer. And who knows, maybe he'll connect on a good buck. So good luck to him. Good luck to everybody that's going out tomorrow in the early season. And before we get to this episode, real quick, I just want to leave a shout out to Little Mountain Outfitters, guys. It's here. Get your equipment set up. If you've been the guy that waited till the last minute to do fine-tuning, get last-minute equipment, go to Little Mountain Outfitters, Richland, Pennsylvania. Fantastic archery shop with excellent customer service. Uh, you know, these guys are – we push you to do this stuff and get ready early, but these guys are also prepared for those who wait last minute, and they've got the, st- the shelf stocked. Maybe you decided you want to – upgrade a bow yet you can still do that they've got prime matthews bear and more they've got cross you know crossbow updates equipment updates guys if you're looking to do some last minute food plots believe it or not it's still not too late you're closing on that window for fall food plots but real real world wildlife seed is on the shelves as is the saddle hunting and mobile hunting gear that you would want to get your hands on and try for this fall. So guys, check them out, Little Mountain Outfitters. And let's get to this episode. All right, after an epic failure the first time on a quick one, we're going to try this take two. So on the phone with us tonight, we got Matt Zernsack. Matt, how are you? Good, guys. How are you? Good. I am better now that we're going to not have any technical <laughs> difficulties moving forward. The joys of podcasting, man. Like, you guys, we were talking a little I bit before it. we got started. Like, you, you guys do, like, two a week roughly throughout certain points of the year? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, uh, like, what? what's your background when it comes to uh, when, when it comes to your, your profession? Like, and I say that relative to your ability to just pick stuff up on the technical side because I'm not going to lie. This has been a learning <laughs> curve. Right. Yeah, I I, uh, I work as a engineering project manager, so working with a lot of engineers. I have an engineering background from a schooling standpoint, and um, do a lot of work uh, on developing like connected products and whatnot. So technology is is kind of up my alley just a little bit. But man, there is a steep learning curve with this stuff. It doesn't matter how 
prepared you think you are. It, it you have a guest on, you're rolling, and you guys are you know in that fifty episode range. So, I, have you guys had like an epic failure to the point where you lost all your audio after like an amazing show? Have you ever had that happen yet? Um, no, I think the worst thing that I've had happen was like. Uh, and, and most of the time it's self-inflicted. So like you get everything set up, you think, man, I've got everything set up the way I want it to be. And you start recording that episode and then I wait till the last minute to edit it and send it out. And I start to edit it and go, oh my word, this one track is a mess <laughs> and yeah. it's going to take me two hours to right. fix it. And like, yeah. that's been the worst thing. I've been fortunate that so far I haven't lost anything. Now I, I know I loaded uh, the, everybody who's listening to this, you're probably thinking, what the hell are these guys talking about? Um, <laughs> we, Matt and I got started here, Robbie and I, and we uh, had an SD card full. So I just cleared some stuff on the SD card because I, uh, I loaded it onto my computer before, so I should be good. But now, now my luck is I jinxed myself and I deleted something that I wanted. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're going to want that. Yeah, so. we've, we've had some epic failures to the point where you know files got corrupt after we were trying to export them or uh, forgetting to press record after like a mid-show break on like a two-and-a-half-hour <laughs> podcast. Oh, and you have to go back and start over. It's, it was bad. So. Oh, yeah, that would yeah, make you so I can, I can completely empathize, so don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. So, hey, for those um, listening to this episode that don't know Matt, I mean, Matt, tell us a little bit about yourself and the Push Archery. Sure, yeah. So I'm Matt Zernzak. I'm 37 years old. I live in western Pennsylvania, father of five boys and my beautiful wife, Wow, uh, God bless you. Yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> and um, back in roughly 2006 time frame, I got bit by the archery bug. I cut my teeth on, on hunting with my dad, rifle hunting here in Pennsylvania, uh, and then cut my teeth on freedom with my buddies when we were like 16 years old. We were uh, jump shooting rabbits. That was our passion. I mean, we were skipping school and doing everything we possibly could to, to get on rabbits. And then, um, my buddy started shooting. It was interesting. They started shooting, uh, at Oneida bow hunters in, in Butler, Pennsylvania. And, uh, they were hanging out every Tuesday night. And during the summer times, when we'd come back from college, I was feeling left out. I was really bummed out that my buddies were hanging out and drinking a few beers and shooting bows at the bow club. And I didn't, I didn't participate in archery. So I told my my wife, she was my fiance at the time. I'm like, oh, man, I really wish I could hang out with. It was, it was actually her, my best friends were uh, her older brother and her older cousin. So, um, and so hanging out with them, and, and I told them, man, I, I'd really like to get into to archery. I think recurves are kind of cool. And eight months later, she surprised me with a recurve for Christmas, and that was my first introduction to archery. And that's when you knew um, she was the one to marry. Yeah. And that, and I put a ring on her finger that night. <laughs> and yeah, so you know. As the obsession grew, I, after that, I just got completely absorbed with, with bow hunting. I'd never, from that moment on, I didn't carry a rifle or a firearm in the woods after white-tailed deer. From that on, I just, I love the chase. I love, especially Western Pennsylvania, or all of Pennsylvania. It's that, like, close hand-to-hand combat type of style. It's like, you know, 30 yards is a long way in the Pennsylvania hardwoods, right? And it's just oh, yeah. such an awesome experience getting you know, ground hunting for them, running and gunning for them in tree stands. It's just amazing to, to bow hunt here in, in the great state of Pennsylvania. So that's, that's pretty much it for the hunting side. Um, and along the way, we, uh, we started to push archery and, uh, we, I can get into that a little bit. If you'd like, I, I absolutely was, you know, I was going to ask you, I was so, so you started, you picked up a stick bow and you really never picked up a compound bow of, to any extent. 
That's right. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a really funny story because my buddies that I was just referencing, anytime I'd be at the farm or you know, our family farms and stuff hanging out and they'd have their bows there. I mean, it was an absolute. Can you swear on the show? I, I don't care. I don't tell anybody. They can do whatever they <laughs> yeah. want. So it was an absolute shit show. And so <laughs> they, they, they pull these bows out. And I'm talking like 2005, 2006 time frame. They're pulling out these like 1985 Hoyt, like, <laughs> They're like 60-inch compounds. And, I mean, the cams on these things, every time we shot, stuff was flying off these bows. And it was just and, – and that was my first exposure to archery in general. I'm like, dude, whatever that is, I don't want anything a part of that because that, that looks, like, so complicated. And and so I, I really, you know, with the passion I have for traditional archery now, I thank my friends. They have since moved over to recurves and longbows as well. But I thank them because they were shooting, like, two decade old equipment and like really steered me away from the compound archery. And, uh, I'm just really cool. It was a cool experience finding traditional archery in that way. Um, but then obviously once you get into archery, start, you know, rubbing elbows with other people at different shoots, you see what real compounds like up to date, modern compounds are. It's like, Oh, I could have did that. That looks cool. Like <laughs> right. that's, that's completely reasonable. It, it, things aren't flying off their bows as they're shooting every session. So that's pretty nice. So I've, I mean, other than messing around, I've really never shot much uh, traditional type archery. Yeah. I mean, I had uh, I had a friend I borrowed a longbow and played around with it, and I learned that um, the bow really was not set up for me to shoot it starting out the way it should have been. Which I, I'm sure, sure you're going to help me out in understanding some of the things that were going on when I bring, when we talk about it. But Robbie, did you ever really fling arrows with no, a, the just stick bow? At a at a bachelor party one time, a uh, guy brought one up, and I shot a few times, and then my cousin has one, and I shot it a few times, but never never to the point where I actually, like, focused and tried to get better on every shot. I just slung three it, to five arrows and then walked away from it. It's like the day and age we live in. Like, you know, you talk about so many people, you know, our age, like, I'm, I'm 28 and you're 20, 25, and... You know, we've only ever picked up compound bows, and it's like the same thing in the rifle world. Like, how many people do you know that don't know how to shoot open sights on a rifle because right. they grew up yeah. shooting a scope, and that's all they know? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So, you're, I mean, right. I've, I've, I have a lot of respect for people who can can put it in, but I mean, yeah. you, you're so your fascination has just been with that. So, um, my first question, um, I, again, I'm kind of green when it comes to a lot of the information out there about um traditional archery i um the first thing i'll say is the the two-hour film that you have on youtube um and kind of going through that generic basic stuff up to some intermediate stuff in traditional archery world of information like i, I like I, I had to, <laughs> i had to pause that a lot and digest some of that stuff sure, I, yeah. it was just loaded full of that and you know that's something that you had to obviously go through and 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 you know learn the hard way and and you shared with us in a two-hour video i mean kind of go through that process because from my mindset as a compound archer i feel like i'd have to relearn how to shoot a bow sort yeah. of sure yeah absolutely you know it's that's kind of the, the video you're referencing is how the push got started. We, we didn't like start a brand or say, okay, we want to be the, the big thing in Tristan Archery. Like we have no aspirations for that whatsoever. Um, how that happened is my, my good friend from high school who then we went to college together. Um, we had kind of parted ways after college and I got into art. I had gotten into archery and he was a diehard compound archer. Tim Neville was my partner in, in the push. And uh, it was a couple years later after I'd, 
you know, started getting pretty proficient with my recurves and whatnot. He, he reached back out. We reconnected and he had saw a couple of posts of some deer I killed that season. And he's like, dude, take me under your wing. I'm ready. I want to, I want to try a traditional archery. Um, so we spent, you know, a few months together, uh, kind of reconnecting and I kind of took him under my wing and, you know, he's like, dude, that was a lot of information. Like we should basically do something with that. So we decided that we were going to just make a video because it was really frustrating. Like you guys probably feel the same way right now. If you did want to get into traditional archery, like where would you start? If there was no the push archery and there was no starter video out there on YouTube, I mean, you'd go to YouTube, then you'd have to go on some forums or maybe some Facebook traditional archery groups. And you go to these five, six, seven different pieces of places, sites of information. You gather that content and then you finally have enough information to make a half educated decision about what type of bow and mm-hmm. just to be able to shoot your first arrow and how you're going to approach shooting your arrow. Um, so Timmy was really, really good at cinematography and videography. So I'm like, Hey, let's, let's make a video. Let's make a one-stop shop that gives everybody everything they need to know. If they even have the slightest, um, you know, desire to get into traditional archery. And that's kind of why we called ourselves in the brand, the push. And that was the start of that video. And we put that video out there and, you know, it took us uh, a long time, one long weekend, it was three days of filming, and then it felt like forever, but it was about eight weeks of editing. And once we put it out there, we were blown away. I mean, it, we put that out there in 2016, and it is still at the pace of getting 600 to 800 views per day. I, I don't know who's watching this thing, but it's about to hit 2 million views. And, I mean, it's just a bunch of – it's just two guys from Pennsylvania in a, in a barn on our family farm talking about true archery, and I can't – that's you know how how many people are interested in that so um it it was it was good it positioned us well and one video turned into two and then two videos turned into three and then we started a podcast a year later and then we started designing products and we started putting out online coaching uh as well so we go to across the country we can talk about that later um but yeah the brand kind of just organically kept growing over time and uh, that's kind of where we started there that is really cool i that's a backstory about it that i did not know that's really cool um and and i I think part of the reason why it's got to be such a big organic growth and you see some kind of growth on that video specifically is because traditional archery is at the core i think of every human being on the face of the entire world i mean it's like sure it's i swear it's in our blood and i mean yeah yeah um yeah, I mean, I know how I feel about shooting a compound. I've always been intrigued by by traditional archery. So, I mean, gosh, from from the standpoint, my experiences have been I've shot bows that were usually too heavy, and um, there's a lot of controversy over aiming. You know, I've heard a lot of people talk about instinctive oh, yeah. shooting sure. versus gap shooting versus, um, you know, you know, walking with the string and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I mean, where do you fall into that and in, into your, uh, your journey in traditional archery? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and to back up for a moment, you were talking about how you think traditional archery is ingrained in all of us. I think, you know how you guys feel when you're shooting at like 80 yards to be able to actually allow your, your mind, your mind's eye to catch up with that arrow's trajectory mm-hmm. and then watch it the rest of the way into the target. Like how awesome that is to drop bombs at 60, 70, 80 yards with your compounds. Certainly. You know, so traditional archery, we all like, if you picked up a recurve and shot, you get that same feeling shooting at 20 yards because the arrow is going so slow. There's something about that velocity of like 160 to 190 feet per second. That is just like super beautiful because that arrow has a nice arc on it at 30 yards and under. 
and you get to like pick it up and watch an arc in there. It's just something. I think that's why we are all so drawn to watching an arrow fly. It, it's under that sub 200 feet per second range. I think Certainly. it's just our eyes can catch up to it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to segue into that, our eyes catching up to our arrow's trajectory, setting our arrow on a trajectory path is all we're doing whenever we're setting our aim. Um, so I know there is, there was at least back in the early 2000s for sure, there's a huge scuttlebutt in the Trish Archer community. Just these factions just butting heads on, you know, whether aiming's traditional or not. And within, in, in like any group, any subgroup or minority within a larger community, like the infighting, we just like eat each other alive on trying to cut up and dice everyone and put everybody into a category and like defining what's traditional, like what's trad and not. Um, that's really interesting. Like you have it with fly fishermen, right? It, mm-hmm. Like it's just all the, all these different, and I'm sure there's all, all different examples of that, all different types of, of hunting in general, but, um, you know, there's the purist and the non-purist. So I, I fall into the aiming methods. Um, you know, traditional archery is this big mystical black box to a lot of outsiders looking in. And, and again, that's why we wanted to start with the video and put that out there because there are a ton of different ways to shoot a traditional bow and they're they're no different you know it's you can grab any bow and shoot it any different way from an aiming perspective and i fall into the belief system that the arrow tip is right in front of your eye like why purposely ignore it for the sake of ignoring it and saying that you're more traditional i'm going to use that as a single pin sight so it's no different than a single pin sight uh, and that's how i approach shooting the bow so i plot my trajectory so i know you know I'll set up my arrow length. So a couple different factors. So just like a compound, if you have a single fixed pin sight on the front of your bow, right. at you you might have, you know, that might be, yeah, that pin might be set for a point on it, like let's say 30 yards. And you know you're gonna have to aim low. You're gonna have to hold it low, bottom of chest at 20 yards, and you might have to aim top of back at 45 yards. Um, and you're just basically gapping your pin gapping. We're doing the same thing with the tip of our arrow. So I know what you basically do to find your point on distance is you start at the bail at the target and you draw a horizontal line or use a piece of tape and you just slowly start working your way back and you draw back and get into a comfortable anchor that's super repeatable, get into your back tension, get into good alignment. All the archery principles are all identical between compound and recurves. You get back to a good, comfortable, repeatable aim or anchor in in body position. You set your, your uh, tip of your arrow right on that horizontal line and you shoot. And eventually you're going to continue to hit high and you keep stepping back until you no longer are hitting high. You just hit right on that, right on that line. And now, you know, at that distance, let's say for this example, it's 25 yards at that distance at 25 yards, that's your point on distance. So all you have to do when a deer is standing there, it's 25 yards away. You draw back, you close one eye or squint one eye and stick the tip of the arrow right on the heart and the arrow is going to go there. And then typically with hunting weight, recurves and longbows and the weight arrows that we're, we're shooting like 550 to, you know, 700 grain arrows somewhere in there. Um, the arrows trajectory will enable you, if you have a 25 yard point on typically from 20 yards down to 10 yards, all you have to do is stick the tip of the arrow on the bottom of the chest and the vitals are about six to eight inches tall, you know, is, is all you need to hit. So there is that, you know, there's a little bit of variability between 10 and 20 yards from an aim point, you know, a couple different inches here or there. But if you just stick at the bottom of the chest, if you're standing on flat ground with that deer, uh, you're going to be right there. You're going to sink it right in the boiler room. And then at 30 yards with that example of a 25-yard point on, 30 yards, just hold top back, and that arrow will drop right into the vitals. 
that makes a lot of sense to me from yeah. an aiming standpoint. And since we're still on the aiming topic, yeah, yeah. Um, talk a little bit about what that's like when you put a, a two or three blade broadhead on the front. Is that, yeah, is so that, that changing your field of vision? Yes, it absolutely is. So there's a couple different schools of thought there. Um, so what I personally do is I'll use either really white tape, um, so like a white electrical tape, or I'll use some like really fluorescent paint and I'll paint or I'll tape the last half inch of my arrow right at the end of the insert before the broadhead or the field tip. So as I'm practicing all season long, or at least I, I don't do this for the whole season because you do have to replace the tape, especially on field tips mm. as you get that target burn as it's going in and out. Uh, but for my prime hunting arrows, once I've down selected to my, my system for the year, I get my arrows, get my bow set up and I'm ready to go. And I've choose my, chosen my broadhead. What I typically do is I'll put that white wrap of electrical tape on the end of the insert. And now what I'm doing when I'm setting all my gaps and all my aim points, I'm referencing off the white tape. So it doesn't matter if I put a field point on it or a broadhead on it because a field point or a broadhead, the, the quote unquote end of the arrow, the actual physical the end of the arrow will change which will change your uh, point on distance as well. So if you're always referencing the same point down the shaft, which is the white, the white tape, um, then it doesn't matter what tip you have on the front of your arrow. That's interesting. And so another, another trick that I've done in the past is I'll use like a three blade head or even a two blade head, but mostly I, I do this only if I'm using a three blade head and I'll angle it. So it's an upside down Y. So the blade, the top blade is pointing straight up and down as I'm at anchor. So if you do cant the bow a little bit, like turn the bow slightly and lean over, if, if that's how your shooting style is, I orient it. So once I'm in my full can at full draw, that blade is perfectly vertical in the vertical plane. And I'll paint the back of that broadhead blade uh, bright white. And now I have a standing post sight and I can use that post. And I know if I hold the very tip of my broadhead post on the, on the animal, it's a certain distance. Or if I hold midway up, that blade it's a different distance or if i cover up the deer with the broadhead completely so you can cover about 20 yards of distance just by changing uh where you hold the back of the blade on that animal it makes a lot of sense and i mean i can relate a lot to that with with compound shooting in some cases um you know we've been talking about aiming and stuff i kind of want to go back to some of the like just fundamental archery type stuff you know sure Uh, we've we've talked about um, on this show, I've talked about my shooting, you know, I shoot my compound shoot. I try to mimic a lot of target practices and all the good form and all that stuff you would, you'd follow. I mean, I, I'd name drop. I mean, I, I like to f- uh, listen to people like John Dudley. I like to listen mm-hmm. to people like Levi Morgan. Levi's a Pennsylvania boy. Maybe we can figure yeah, out how know, right? get him on Pennsylvania <laughs> woods. That's right. Somebody, somebody's listening to that and wants to drop that out and put it in <laughs> Levi Morgan's ear. That'd be cool. But now anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent here. I, uh, you know, try to do all those things and, you know, monitor form. I mean, I've watched myself shoot in, in video and talked with people and watch me and stuff. And I was listening to, I know who it was, I was listening to a podcast that the O2 um, Ohio guys did. And they were talking with uh, Dr. Ed Ashby. And okay. Dr. Ed Ashby made a comment when he was talking about learning how to, to shoot a bow when he was a kid, um, shooting a stick bow. He said, Howard Hill one time said, you should shoot the bow 
the way it feels natural to you. And that is that, that sounded really, really interesting to me because I feel like every time I do something natural, I've learned that I develop a bad habit along the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, right. I just wondered, you know, from your experience and, and your, you know, everything you've been doing with your shooting, I mean, what is that, what comes to your mind when, when that statement's made? Yeah, I, I think, you know, not to be controversial, but I think that's complete and utter untrue, <laughs> terrible information um, to, to provide out. And, and here's the reason why I'll say that. Um, like you said, Mitch, when you're when you do something that just like, quote unquote, feels right, you usually develop a bad habit at some point. So when you're shooting a bow, when you shoot a, tr- a traditional bow, it makes complete sense for you to hold the bow up, point the arrow at the target draw back the arrow to your face and then keep pulling in the same linear fashion straight away from the target. Right. That just makes complete sense. And we've all done that. If you pick up a bow, you pull it back and you keep your hand moving straight back that linear line in line with the arrow. And if you do that, you are going to wreck your string side shoulder. What you're doing is you're taking that head of the humerus that's upside up in your shoulder socket and you're just slamming that against the wall and you create a condition called bursitis underneath your shoulder and i couldn't tell you how many people of the generation before ours those guys that were coming up in the 90s um, that were shooting traditional bows and like kind of bringing it on the forefront of this resurgence um and those guys there's so many of those guys that can't shoot a bow anymore because they've completely destroyed their shoulders wow um, so there are there are proper ways and proper biomechanics to shooting a bow especially a traditional bow or a single string bow that you're, you know, there's no let off and you're holding that whole holding weight um, to keep your shoulders safe. And it, it does not feel natural whatsoever. Um, I think there's some truth to what Howard Hill said there in that quote. I think shooting a bow, what feels natural, a lot of wood bows, they have a way they want to be shot. So like a, a long bow, a one piece wooden long bow versus a self bow that was carved out of a single piece of wood versus a uh, takedown recurve or even one of these new age metal ILF bows mm. um, that are high, t- high tech. They all like to be shot slightly differently. There's some nuances between all these different types of bows because the mass weights are different. The rotational inertia properties of these bows are different. So they all, in the pressure points, the bow, the limbs will open up and close coming back to brace at different timing. Um, so it, it likes to be held differently in the grip area. So I do agree if we interpret his statement that way to, you know, shoot the bow at how it feels natural, how it feels natural, maybe to shoot that specific bow, but there are proper techniques to keep your body safe for a whole life of enjoyment in archery. Yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, <clears throat> I'm just trying to digest everything with, 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 with <laughs> stick bows because my mind sure. is racing compound. And one thing I've learned is anytime I listen to somebody that's a traditional shooter, I need to sometimes step back and, and try to put myself in like a beginner's mindset with, sure. with shooting uh, traditional archery. Um, yeah, running off of that real quick. I like what you said, Matt. It made me think when you were saying how, uh, you're you're looking at the front of, at your broadhead or at the the front of your arrow there when you're aiming. The whole time I was thinking, wow, if you're doing that, you really have to make sure that you're drawing it back and your anchor is the exact same point every time. Oh yeah, because for sure. If it's not, even if you're a little off, well, that arrow is going to be a little off too. That's right. Um, Absolutely. Because yeah, I, there's no doubt. It's a, I guess it's the same thing with a compound. It's just I think. 
I may be wrong here, but you probably have a little bit more leeway with a compound because oh, the speed of the arrow yeah. makes up for it and everything sure. like and, that. And you have and you have a lot of like visual indications yeah, of exactly. whether or not you're right. So like looking through your peep and aligning your sight housing, you know, yep. those are all dead giveaways that hey, you might not be anch- anchored properly. Um, in traditional bow, we anchor on the side of our face, so we're you, you know using hard surfaces, uh, bone on bone contact within our hands, in our jaws, and our face, and our cheekbones, or maybe even our eye tooth to like try to come up with a multi-point anchor that gives you a really repeatable um, anchor point. And, uh, and, and that's going to minimize the amount of float you have on your backside because your anchor is essentially your rear sight when you're looking at it. Um, just like you're looking through your peep, you got to make sure that that anchor is really repeatable, like you said, Robbie. So one thing I've known and have been told by many people, including my wife, is that I'm a blockhead. And I, the reason I bring that into perspective is when I started shooting a compound, um, I thought when I was, you know, younger age, I wanted to try to maximize my poundage because that was what a big He-Man did. And, uh, you know, two years ago when I borrowed a friend's longbow, I asked him for the lowest poundage bow he had. And uh, he told me the lowest poundage uh, longbow they had was a 50-pound longbow. I was like, oh, that's that's nothing. That's, that's no problem. Um, and I'm not going to lie. I was overbowed. When I, was yeah, trying, for sure. when I was trying to uh, tinker with that. So to avoid a bad experience, I mean, I've heard a couple of different philosophies when you when somebody wants to, to talk about this. And I, I'm bringing this up in a sense that I, I feel like within any aspect of life, it can be a fad for you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, pe- people want to try stuff and they, they just dip their feet in it and they try it, but they don't, you know, engage in it. And maybe that's because they don't have a good quality experience. And, you know, for me, uh, I, I at some point want to pick it up again and I want to start the right way. So w- with with that background, I mean, what are your thoughts when you're starting to pick a bow up? Yeah, it, it, it is definitely depends on the person. You know, if the person is uh, physically fit, um, they have relative flexibility in their joints. Um, they, they also maybe have a weightlifting background, like are, are generally a stronger person. I know shooting a bow and drawing a bow properly, you're not really using some muscles that are typically targeted in the, in the gym or whatnot. But, it, you know, if, it all depends. Like, there's not a, a cookie-cutter prescription of, you know, you have to shoot this poundage when you're starting off. But in general, if I if gun to my head, I had to give some generalities here, I would say it's it would be a really good idea to start off with something in the 38 to maybe 44-pound range, like somewhere in that range. I know that sounded hyper specific, but mm-hmm. um, that that will give you your best opportunity to develop good form, prevent bad habits from creeping in, and be able to generally enjoy your experience. Now, you know, traditional archery is so popular now, and with different types of bows, we can talk about different bows later if you'd like. But there are so many options to be able to invest in a really nice riser, like the handle section, and then be able to snap on different weight limbs as you progress as an archer um, really inexpensively as well and kind of work your way up with good habits and good strength um, to really maximize your enjoyment i i think you should absolutely continue down that path i mean i didn't really have the aspect of making this like the all about beginner um, traditional <laughs> archer when i was talking with you but I, you've got my in, you've piqued my interest so i mean please do like you know the thought that came to my mind was i i guess i have this like ideology in my mind where when it comes to shooting traditional archery, it has to be like 
um, a self bow, hand carved bow, or you know, or something that is that wood traditional mindset. Sure. And I remember watching that in your video, talking about takedowns and having flexibility, and basically, I think you might have even said it like th- having three bows in one kind of deal with that mm-hmm. one riser. Um, so, like, hey, let's go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, if I was sure. going to say. Uh, Matt, I want to I want to invest like it's you know now it's it's August and I'm obviously not going to pick a bow up and start bow hunting with it in 2022. But let's say sure. I wanted to work in the direction to 23 or 24, I wanted to hunt with it. I mean, I got to get started somewhere. So where with with what you just said, I mean, where does that rabbit hole lead you? Yeah, so um, just starting from the most primitive to the most modern, you have like self bows, which are bows that are carved out of a single piece of wood. So you, you'll basically get a stave out of a nice straight log and the stave is just like a wedge of that log at a certain length and you actually carve it out of a, of a piece of wood super craftsman um, that's that is like the most primitive way to get into traditional archery tons of work tons of research is needed and it's just a labor of love um, those guys will, will put 40 50 hours into a, making a bow and have a break on them in the first you know 10 shots or whatnot um, but there are high quality bows that will last you your entire lifetime that are made out of self, the self bow process in, in that category. And then moving on, you then from that, you move into laminated bows and laminated bows are where like the modern recurves and long bows are. Um, and then you have one piece versus multi-piece bows. So a one piece bow is just like it sounds. It's just a laminated piece that doesn't come apart. So it's just a long stick essentially. So you have one piece recurves and one piece long bows. Uh, recurve is defined if the string touches uh, the belly of the bow, which is the side of the bow limb that's facing the archer. So if the string like leaves the string knock and the string groove and actually touches that belly side of the bow while the string's at rest, while the bow is at brace, um, then that's established, uh, categorized as a recurve. And a long bow is just opposite. It doesn't touch. So that limb is kind of bending backwards all the way up until it touches the string and then the string goes straight down to the other limb. So it doesn't touch the backside of that limb at all. Uh, so you have one-piece bows, which tend to be a little bit lighter from a mass weight perspective, but they look really traditional. They're real pretty. They have different laminations inside the woods and the riser woods. Uh, then you have takedown bows, which are, you have rise of the riser, which is the handle section, and they're made out of wood or G10 material or micarta, which is like a resin impregnated manufactured man-made material, but that gives you some strength and a real dense, heavy riser. And mass weight's really good. That's why shooting compounds, you can get a real good stable platform because the mass is there in the right location um, and, and really makes it an enjoyable shooting experience. And, you know, you're starting to see a trend in traditional archery with a lot of these modern uh, boyers, and a boyer is a person who builds these bows. Um, they're starting to incorporate some of these modern, heavier, denser mass weight materials into their risers because, you know, where people are promoting, you know, the benefits from a shooting perspective and an accuracy and precision with having a heavier mass weight bow. Uh, so the takedown bows are, are a riser where you can bolt the limbs on. You can swap limbs out and get lighter ones or heavier ones. But typically those bolt down bows are ones where if you buy a specific manufacturer's riser, like a Black Widow or a Bob Lee or a Stalker mm-hmm. Stick bow you know, from Southcox, you're confined to that manufacturer's limbs as well. So you're you're always going to be going back to that boyer to have get on their build and wait list um, to have uh, your limbs, you know, new set of limbs made for your riser. And then the last category is what we call uh, more modern recurves. They're ILF, which is international limb fit. Um, so way back in the day, um, the ILF 
Hoyt created the ILF, Earl Hoyt created the ILF fluid attachment system. So essentially what that is, is it's a riser and a standard geometry, and the limb has a through hole through it right from the end of the butt where it touches the riser, and it has a dovetail in it, and it snaps into the riser. And the real cool benefit about ILF bows is you can buy a riser from Hoyt, and you can snap limbs on from Uka or snap limbs on from MK, which are Korean manufactured limbs. Um, or you can get some from Border, which are Scottish-made limbs. And all of them adhere pretty closely to that international limb fit geometry. So all risers and limbs will now fit together. So now you can mix and match from all these different manufacturers. So you can buy the best riser that fits you personally, and then the best limbs that feel nice because you like that draw cycle and match them up. And then at any given time, you can have a really light set of, you know, 25, 28 pound limbs that, you know, in the wintertime, you're going to work on your form and do some blank bailing and whatnot. You can snap off your hunting limbs and throw your, you know, lighter training limbs on and, and go to town and, and train in the wintertime. So, uh, and those ILF bows are mostly metal. Um, they're aluminum, 6061 or 7075 aluminum. And uh, it's just a really good option. And, and the nice thing about those is the way they're designed the limbs actually rock on just much like a compound limb. If you could picture the end of a compound limb, uh, that tiller bolt essentially will, you can preload that tiller bolt and change the poundage of your bow. Uh, and you can do that with recurves um, with the ILFs as well. So uh, the standard rule of thumb is you can transition plus or minus uh, 10 pounds. So up 5% down, um, not pounds, 10% of the limb weight, limb weight. So in an example of a 50 pound limb, uh, 50 pound bow, you can go up two and a half pounds or down two and a half pounds in limb weight. So you can go to, you know, 52.5 or down to 47.5. And so it's nice whenever you're tuning, you can get an arrow tuned in properly by just micro adjusting that weight as well. Um, so yeah, the modern way to go is really nice. And also with the modern stuff, you can shoot elevated rests, you know, and not like compound style rests, but more static style rests, but it does help with arrow flight and a lot of different options with the modern style. So I, I would, you know, always push people towards a bow that really speaks to them from an attractive perspective. So if you are a gear junkie and you are a tinker and, and a lot of guys coming over from the compound round, they are, they are that. Um, I really push them towards this metal riser ILF side of things. Um, but if you're a guy that's trying to run as far away from compound archery, like you've been there, you've done that, you want to go like full trad, you know, crazy. Um, then you got to look at those different bows, like the self bows, the one piece long bows and recurves or the bolt or the wooden takedown long bows and recurves. And it just has to speak to you. You, you I really push people towards the type of bow that is going to be talking to them as they're walking out the door from the bow rack. Be like, Hey dude, pick me up, shoot, shoot me a few times. Right. You want, you want to be motivated to shoot so you can become the best archer yourself. So I always push people like you have to have a love lust with whatever bow you decide to go with first. Yeah, it has to be attractive to you. Yeah, it's it's got to be something that you're you're going to run the journey out and something running out your way kind of deal, I guess. So to speak, right. run it out on what feels right. And, yep. you talked and about, it won't be and it won't be your last bow. I can guarantee you that, right? So <laughs> oh, I can that's relate one to the compound with, too. Yeah, dude, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's like one of those things. Like, what bow do I get first? Well, honestly, you're going to try them all. If you're right. a tinker, you're going to try them all eventually. Yep. So just just dive into one that's most attractive to you right now and just know like next year you're going to try a new one and, and so on and so forth. I think it's pretty cool. Like you're talking about the technology within its stuff and like how the, you know, you're talking about bow years trying to 
make bows heavier and accommodate different, you know, you know, more stable shooting platforms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know, you know, looking at some of the other videos that I've seen on YouTube, like trying to do modernized type things and still an instinctive or, or just a, a no sight, you know, type situation shooting. Mm -hmm. And, uh, like I just get a kick out of when you, like years ago, I feel like everything was made light because it was fit for hunting. It was fit for hunting. And I'm like, you know, I shoot a, you know, I was shooting a 15 inch front bar and a 12 inch back bar on my compound. And I took it everywhere with hunting and I had no problem maneuvering anywhere in Pennsylvania where I went. I mean, it got a little harder when I was going bear hunting in Northern Pennsylvania on some mountains, but I mean, I could still do it. And then like, I think about when like the, like the new compounds that are out and like the, the big kick for the longest time is like, Oh, it's a short axle, axle bow. It's a good tree stand, bow. I'm like, well, if it's a good tree stand bow, then how how is it possible that guys are shooting deer out of a tree stand with sixty eight inch longbows and stuff like <laughs> right. that? Like, is that not a right. tree stand bow? Like, come yeah, on! Exactly. I think a lot of that, a lot of that mindset is a lot of people thinking they're going to be backpacking in twenty miles and going to shoot an elk with a bow, and that's why yeah. they got the light bows and everything like sure. that. Sure. Yeah, I think I think from a marketing angle, they're like trying to tickle that like little adventure style in all of us. But at the end of the day, like, I know where I am. I know where my wheelhouse is. My wheelhouse is Western Pennsylvania whitetail hunting, right? That's, that's where my passion is. Yeah, I'm going to go and do some hunts and stuff, you know, every, every other year and whatnot. But my equipment choices, I spend so much time in the woods. You know, I'm, I'm getting five, six different hunts in a week whenever it's the heat of the, you know, the heat of the season. And, I don't know about you, but I'm not hiking in three miles to get into my deer stand. Like I'm hunting a lot of suburban areas. I'm hunting like small 200, 300 acre farms. I mean, the the longest walk I have to some of these uh, stand sites, these ambush locations are 500, 600, 700 yards. Like I can, I can sacrifice. I could carry a heavy bow in there to know that it's a stable shooting platform. I want it to shoot like a sniper rifle, uh, and not be like, oh, this is really light. That really saved my shoulder on that, you know, 15-minute approach to my stand. That's just it. I I think a lot of it is marketing, man. I think of all industries, I mean, I think the hunting industry is one that is just absolutely bad for the marketing schemes that get pulled over on people to buy the latest and greatest stuff. And it's just stuff to me that doesn't always make sense. But, you know, you talked about bringing up whitetails, man. That could get us going down a rabbit hole, and I might go down (laughs) that rabbit hole. But I, I, I do have to ask you. Um, you know, you talked about feel and we were going back and forth between recurve and longbow. I mean, I know when you shoot recurves, you're typically going to be able to get more feet per second out of a recurve, but I mean, like I've seen you shooting on videos, you, you shoot a lot of recurves. I mean, is that a feel thing? Do you prefer the speed? Does it just feel the best? Like, like, tell me about that. Cause everybody's got their own philosophy going back and forth between those two style of bows. For sure. Um, I love the way longbows look like when I see somebody walking through the woods with a quiver on and they have a long stand in there, or I see a picture of a longbow laying up against that deer, like dude, longbows just look super, super cool. Um, and, and there are dyed and wool, you know, longbow guys that are, that won't shoot recurves because they love the feel. They love the nostalgia. They love how quiet they are. You know, there's a lot of pros and cons with both. So recurves are typically, going to be on your noisy, noisier side, but with advanced tuning methods and the new modern materials that are in these, these recurve limbs, these aren't, these aren't your grandpa's recurves anymore. Like they are some very high end materials. I mean, shoot, they're using see-through material 
in the core laminations of these to where you can hold the bow up to a the, the riser to a light, or I'm sorry, the limb up to a light, and you can see through it, see through the side of the, the, of the limb profile. So advanced material science is helping like with all of the negative things about recurves being noisier because I am a I am a noise Nazi when it comes to my bows. They have to be super, super quiet. And that's one of the big advantages to traditional archery is these bows are just deathly quiet. And, you know, if something does go awry, most of the time you're going to get a second shot if your arrow doesn't hit its mark uh, because they are so quiet. And uh, but from a longbow standpoint, they typically, you know, recurves on the back end right about that. Like if you have a 28 or 29 inch draw length, right about that 26, 27, 28 inch area of that draw cycle. They're typically going to be a little bit softer in comparison with a longbow. The longbows are typically going to stay pretty consistent in their draw length or maybe even go up a little bit. So a standard rule of thumb with a recurve is for every inch that you draw the bow, you're adding about two and a half to three pounds, um, between two and three pounds of, of holding weight per inch. So if you do have a, a recurve that is rated 50 pounds at 28 inches, you can still shoot it if you have a 29 or a 30 inch draw, as long as it's a longer bow and the boyer, you know, has it marked that this is good on their website, that that's good up to certain draw length. But let's say you have a 30 inch draw length and that's rated 50 pounds at 28 inches. You're going to overdraw that bow by two inches and you're going to be pulling roughly about 55 pounds. So two and a half pounds per inch you went past. And then also it works the same way under. So if you had a 26 inch draw length in that same example, uh, you'd be shooting right at 45 pounds in that 50 pound example. And so I say all that to, to mention that longbows typically as you're coming through that 26, 27, 28 draw, 28 inch of draw length in that draw cycle, they typically will go two and a half pounds for that inch. And then when you go from 27 to 28, they might jump up 2.8. And then from that 28 to 29, it might jump up to 2.9 or three pounds gained in that draw. So it's incrementally increasing as you go. Um, some people call that stacking, but it's just, it's a stiffer feeling limb on the back end. Some people do really, really well with a stiffer feeling limb that kind of feels like it's wanting to rip the string out of your fingers. Like it's ready to go. The minute your subconscious is like, yeah, let that, let that shot go. That string's blown through their fingers. Some people in their biomechanics and the, and their approach to shooting these bows, sometimes that works better for them. And they will like to have like a stiffer feeling limb or a stiffer feeling bow on the back end. If you are one of those people, you'll probably feel that in the longbow category. Uh, on the recurve category, the spectrum is a lot wider because they do have limbs that are real stiff at the front end, but feel real, real light on the back end, and then vice versa as well. And then they have like real linear drawing recurve limbs as well. So the recurve technology is probably more advanced, especially once you get into those ILF, those more modern recurve limbs. Uh, but yeah, for me personally, I've just always fell into the recurve world. I can get my bows whisper quiet with advanced tuning methods. And, uh, and I just like the performance. And I like the back end feel. I'm one of those shooters that like a softer feel on the back end. I like to get back to anchor, get my aim point and not feel rushed to let that string go. Like I want to get back and get everything settled, make sure I'm running my shot, make sure I'm, I'm everything's all my ducks are in a row. And then I can move on to the execution phase of my shot process. Well, I, I think I would probably echo what you're talking about there and how you want your shot process to go. Because when I think about 
my sh- my compound shooting. You know, I shoot. Um, I've you know past couple of years I've been shooting a hinge style release for hunting. Uh, cool. I, I shoot it. Non- How's that going for you? It, it's been great. You know, I shot yeah. a hinge release. You know, indoor target and on target, and I got to the point where like, why can't I do this with my uh, when I go hunting. So, I mean, it's probably been five, five, six years, something like that, that I've been doing it. Maybe even longer. I can't keep track anymore. Do you have a and click, I, do you have a click in that, in that release? I've gone back and forth. I actually, for a long time, I shot without a click, um, for mm-hmm. a really okay. long time. Cause I, I thought that was, um, that was a better surprise. And it is, uh, I, like, I think when I'm on target and I can sit on target all day and just shoot target, I think that is, a a more accurate I, I think i'm a little bit more relaxed because i mean obviously a click there's a little bit more i mean a lot of people would argue you're like defeating the purpose of of that release and and i've i've come since to change my thought process listening to a couple other compound shooters what i actually do now is i adjust the tension um you know a certain way that when i draw back and anchor and I'm I'm going through my shot process. I'll roll. I'll purposely roll my hand to the click first, and then that establishes like everything is the same in my hand and my wrist. I'm going through all my my checkpoints from my front of my bow arm to the you know the back of my elbow, all those those points. And that hand position thing. What I learned for that is not only is it is it I'm able to be a little bit more consistent in how I repeat that, but when I'm hunting. Um, I, I think that actually helps me with shot timing in a hunting situation because, you know, for, for a deer at 20 or, you know, think about how many times you're hunting, um, in Pennsylvania, you know, especially if it's in the rut or early rut, you know, bucks slipping through a thick stuff. I mean, I find myself, you know, hunting close to bedding cover. Um, sure. so if a buck is you know slipping through bedding cover, chasing the doe, whatever, I mean, there's times where you can make an ethical shot at a close distance, but you need to do it in a short amount of time. Well, what I found is if I can use a clicker and get into that position a whole lot, lot quicker, I sort of know it's going to go off i can still develop a surprise release sure even if i i force it a little bit more it's 14 yards you know it's it's, right. it's 20 yards like my my thought process is if i'm going to shoot a longer distance like i'm going to shoot 30 35 40 yards like i need to have all the time in the world to execute that shot officially so you know i'm i'm, I'm rambling because i can go on tangents too as you notice but you know i uh <laughs> I, I bring that up because you were talking about the feel in your longbow versus your recurve bow. And I noticed when I was shooting that longbow that it was, it was like a stiffer, a stiffer feel kind of wanted to jump out of my hands a little bit. And I think about how I relate to my compound. Like I'm somebody who I'm not going to sit. I'm not like chance Bobaff in, in target archery where he'll just like sit there. I swear he's there for a half hour till his bow Hmm. goes off. But like, I'm somewhere in between, like I like to draw, I like to hold a little bit and like, like, make sure I'm there. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't typically like to shoot quick. I have a, I have a, a longer process. So, you know, to what you're talking about with a recurve, I mean, you're, you're talking about going through your process, having to be softer, aiming, take your time. Like I, I can sort of relate to that. And that's probably something that I would have a better experience if I had a feel on a tr- traditional setup like that. Yeah. If, you, if you're really like one of those shooters, that's really conscious in their shot process right now, we, we work, we do a lot of work with, with Joel Turner from shot IQ. Mm. Um, he's one of our really Wealth good buddies. And, yeah. And so when, when you were talking about rolling to the click, you know, that, that, that click rolling to that click is like your barrier to your execution. So it's that start. It's that 
physical break between, okay, I'm, my shot set up and everything's looking good to roll to the click. Okay, here I go. I'm ready to, I'm ready to actually get this party going. Um, and that's how I like to shoot as well. So I, I guys that are shooting these, um, you know, full tension activated releases where they're actually having to take the safety off. So they'll draw back with their safety on, get everything aligned, get to their here I go moment as soon as the aim's achieved and have to take that safety off and run and execute their shot. Or the same if, if guys are using you know, back tension release. Um, I really like that to talk to those guys and talk them into a more softer feeling bow on the back end because they're a process oriented archer. And process-oriented archers want to just get back, get a comfortable feeling in the backside, and then run their shot. Yeah, and I got to that point because I developed a lot of bad habits early on. Like I was talking about, you know, target panic, punching the trigger, this and that. And, you know, I had to, it was a, it was a brain training thing to get to that point um, in my shooting. So, you know, that's, I, I, I'd be very interested to see when, you know, when I eventually take that leap of faith and, and want to try something different. Maybe if, if shooting my compound gets boring to me, I, sure. I mean, I, I'm still infatuated. I, I, anybody who picks up a stick bow and kills deer consistently. And I know you do because I've seen your videos. I've seen you kill a pile of deer sometimes and, and, and or talk about killing a pile of deer in a season mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And that's just, I, I mean, it's, does it get any more pure than just killing <laughs> deer with a bow? It's, you know, it, there's there's something super primal about watching an arrow sink into the chest cavity of a deer, man. It's just like, yeah. it gets me amped up. I, I recorded a podcast earlier today with one of my bow hunting buddies from a, another Tristan Archery brand, and we were just <laughs> nerding out big time on uh, on the upcoming season. And Man, what's you know, got you the most the fired up? Oh, dude, I, I, th I think it's, Honestly, it's it's the smell and the in the temperature right now. It's just like it's in my blood now. I'm like things are things are coursing through my veins. I, I've I've definitely flipped the switch. It's funny because like right around that July time frame, a flips a, a switch gets flipped because I'm a big competitive archer as well. Yeah. I compete in in barebow uh, archery class, and uh, and usually I have a tournament on the calendar in August. I go to outdoor nationals that just happened this past weekend. Um, but I didn't go this year. Um, we had a filming project that, that kind of conflicted with that. So this year, my flip, my switch got flipped, uh, a few weeks earlier and that was in July and right around that, dude, I just, I want, I want to put down my competition bow and I just want to get my hunting bow out and, and do some fine tuning and start shooting broadheads. And that's whenever I go, I go freaking white tail crazy. So I, I don't know. I'm pumped up, man. I, I'm so excited for this season. All right, now you in a part of the state where you get to hunt in the special regs early, you know, a little bit early, or do you hunt? Yeah, on buddy, September seventh uh, or September seventeenth is our is our starter. So yeah, the uh, we we uh, I do have hunting properties, and actually I moved down here specifically because of that. <laughs> oh man, this guy's got his priorities. <laughs> I like this. Yeah, guy. we we were uh, we lived in two uh, D, and uh, and when we in like right on the line of two D one A type of area and those WMUs. And then when we were moving, we were moving down towards the Pittsburgh area. And while we were looking for houses, I'm like, I have to have a house in 2B. Like that's, that is, I don't care where we are, where we land. Like I need to have a house and property in 2B wildlife management, you know, just for that reason. Cause I mean, you could go into the court courthouse and buy a fistful of doe tags at any well, point in the year. 
and uh, and you can hunt pretty much all year. Well, I was going to ask the- you that since when you brought that up because um, I just gained access. Like I said, I'm from southeast Pennsylvania, but I just got uh, permission on a property in 2B to hunt this year, and I sent for a doe tag, and of course I got it. But I was looking at the allocations that are still left, and I'm like, do I even have to send for it? Like, <laughs> no, dude, no. So just whenever it opens up for over the counter, just go to your courthouse. You can go to your courthouse there back in, in the eastern side of the state and uh, just go in there and buy them. And I think you could buy them three at a time. And all you have to do is walk out the door and come back in and buy another three. I've been fortunate in a lot of the places that I get to hunt that um, target rich environment, plenty of tags. Mm-hmm. But like you cannot replace like. I don't care how much target you shoot. I don't even care if you shoot competition archery. Competition archery is definitely a level above your own in the backyard practice because it's outside your comfort zone. I mean, like when you're shooting under pressure against people, that's that's probably the closest that you get to a a mature buck standing in front of you (laughs) as far as like the the pressure you're under for shooting. But at the same time. nothing replaces like (laughs) repeating shooting a bunch of deer. And when you get tags like that in a place like that, like that helps your bow hunting success so much. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I'll never, so I'm, I'm one of those guys. I'm not a trophy hunter. I'm just, I've just never have been. I'm one of those guys that shoot. If it's, if it's legal and it's standing in front of me, I'm usually, I'm usually shooting. I'm super itchy trigger finger. Like I just love the act, that primal moment of, just bearing down that arrow and full draw and aiming at that animal, knowing I'm going to take this animal like that. I'm so addicted to that moment that I, I don't know. I don't like to let it up to chance, but in recent years, uh, I've started holding on to my tag a little bit longer, at least my buck tag, but I just unleash it on the doe every single year. So I know a lot of guys, they'll be, you know, have this target buck in the area and they're not going to shoot a doe, um, until they're ready. But man, it, what a warm up! Like we go from late season. Like if you're lucky, you shoot a deer in late season, which would put you as close to opening day as possible of getting some reps and shooting at an animal. So what is that? January, yeah. maybe early February if you're hunting in, in Ohio. So you go all year round. I mean, if you go on a hog hunt or do some small game hunting somewhere, that's one thing. But opening day for me is September 17th. So I'm going to be walking in the woods exactly a month from today, uh, heading up in the in the in the timber. And I've not shot at an animal for almost a year now. And what better way to just, you know, I know there's big bucks on their summer feeding patterns. And if, if the wind direction and your, and your ambush sites have everything's lining up and you got one of those freaking days where you're like, I think tonight's the night. Yeah. Don't slip into that ambush spot and go for a drone strike and then shoot a big nanny standing in front of your stand. I get that. Like, don't blow that honey hole. But, you know, I, I urge all bow hunters to like have those burner properties like go knock on doors call in favors to friends like try to get properties to where you really don't care uh about screw quote unquote i'm using air quotes uh screwing up that area because there's nothing better for that moment of truth whenever you do have that big boy that you've been lusting over those trail cam picks all summer and he's finally in front of you dude I, i don't know about you but i like to have two or three deer in my freezer already before that moment happens just to know i've shaken off all the cobwebs I know slick kids beware when I'm in the woods. Yeah, I mean, most of the yeah buddy. I just, I'm with you. I, I mean, I just love shooting the things. I mean, Me too. I, 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 I'm, too. I, I'm very much about trying to shoot a big deer. I mean, I, I hold on to my tag as long as possible, and it, it better be something that, you know, I, I have picked out. You know, that's that's kind of how, uh, how my mindset rolls. But, man, I am – 
you know, I've been into some situations where I've, been, I've, you know, more recently in how I've changed my philosophy in certain spots that I hunt and, you know, trying to manage hunting pressure. And uh, I've let more doe walk the past probably two or three years than ever before. And I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's like eating me alive. Like I, <laughs> that makes my skin crawl a little bit. I'm like, oh. it, it does. <laughs> like, you know, like last year, like, so 2020, like it didn't matter what I did. I mean, if I looked at a deer wrong, I killed it. I mean, it was, that was the season mm-hmm. it was. And then last year, um, early on, I could have shot some doe, but the, the, the location I was, I was after a certain, a certain buck and I held off. I thought I got plenty of season. I got all season to shoot a deer. And, uh, I kid you not the way my season worked last year, the first year I shot was the last day of the statewide flintlock season. That was literally the last, that was the first year I shot last year because I kept, I kept pawning off. And then like when I was ready to shoot a doe, then I, I'd do something stupid. And it's (laughs) like, I'm, I just, uh. It, it got to a point where I was like, "Why, why the hell am I going out? I'm trying to kill stuff." Right. <laughs> Take your bow for a yeah. walk. That's right. I mean, there's there's those special days that I reserve. Like I, I am I'm very strategic when it comes to hunting the the target animals I'm after. And every year I have one or two target animals that I have them narrowed down. I know where they're sleeping. I know where they're bedded. Right. And I know where, where their feed options are at that time of year. And if like barometric pressure is doing what it needs to do, and we got you know, the wind direction at the right miles per hour. And it's like my access could be bomb proof and I can get in and get out. Uh, I'll go for a drum strike. I mean, there's those nights for that. Absolutely. However, and I, and I don't care what's walking by me. I'm not, I'm not even grabbing my bow unless it's him. Right. I, I have those nights and I have a, a bunch of them during the, during the given year. However, you know, I just look back at it in a given year how many hunts you go on and how many opportunities you get and how many of those opportunities is Mr. Big standing in front of you. I'm like, chances are I'm not going to screw this up, right? Chances are he's, he's not in the area. Um, and yeah, I, I have a hard time uh, not picking that bow up sometimes. Well, I, I think probably what I'm, what I'm thinking about as you're talking about is like, you know, we have those moments, I guess last year specifically, I had a lot more of those moments um, than normal. I guess is probably how I would yeah, say it. And I'm, sure. I just, I'm not going to lie, man. I got an itchy trigger finger. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Slick kids are in trouble. I mean, in yeah. all reality, I, I, I haven't done it for a while. Um, I think it was only ever one time I shot a buck, like opening week of archery season. And I remember the first time I, that time I did it, I was like, man, like my, my season for a buck is over. Like this is, this is kind of weird. And now I'm at the point in my life where like, you know, kids work busyness. I'm like, man, if I could shoot a target buck opening week and then have the freedom to just shoot slick heads whenever I want, maybe go in another state, and shoot a buck. but it's, but it's all more relaxed. Like I just put so much freaking pressure on myself last year to shoot a yeah. buck. And then it was, it was, it was a frustrating season. Yeah. That's, that's how it happened to me last year. I, I shot my, my buck in the first week or two of season and, uh, it was still in the early, early season down here in 2B. And it was a, it was a, it was a cool feeling being like, wow, wow, I got the whole season ahead of me just to like target doe. <laughs> it's going to be great. It's going to be great. You, you, I'm assuming, I mean, my experience, whenever you've been able to capitalize in that early season, whether you're in 2B, 5C, 5D, I mean, I, the little bit I've been able to hunt in that season, I mean, I've had a lot of good 
good experiences. I mean, are you seeing some of your best hunts of the year in that first couple oh, weeks by, of season? By far. That's that's when I do my killing, for sure. I'll, I'll come out of early season with two deer, three deer under my belt, and that's that's pretty normal. I Man, it sounds um, like you need a walk-in cooler at your house. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I got five boys. <laughs> they don't stay in there very long. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, that that's when I do most of my killing because like that mid October and into November, like when you get into the rut. I I personally, I'm not a, I'm not a rut guy. Um, I think it's cool and and it's it's hit or miss. But like when you hit the rut and you're like in the right area for the right couple days and you're hitting it hard, like you can string together two, three, four hunts that are just like mind-blowing and it's so fun so interactive uh but then it, it's feast or famine at that oh, time yeah you know and it's and i know there's there's strategy to it and there is endless amounts of hours of content on youtube and on podcasts about how to capitalize uh in that you know last week of october into the you know first two to three weeks of november um but man those big bucks on their summer feeding pattern with a perfect weather condition night coming into that, you know, something that's going to shake them up and get them up out of their bed an hour earlier than normal to where they might be coming through that ambush location right at last light. Dude, that is just, it's deadly. It's absolutely deadly. And I, I would prefer targeting it on a buck in September or first week of October. Then it's, I, so let me ask you this. Would you take, would you take one week of peak rut and let's say, let's say November 12th, let's say, would you take one week around the November 12th area of hunting, or would you take three weeks in the mid-September to early October range? Oh, my God, that'd be easy. Three weeks in the early September to early yeah. October range. I mean, I think back, you know, so most of the hunting that I do is uh, is in, you know, the statewide unit. Um, so <laughs> we're starting, Octo- you know, right around October. It's October 1st this year. Um and I think back throughout the history of camera data and then the history of mature deer sightings and just the, the, the history of hunting experiences I've had, opening week, the first seven days of that season, man, I have had some of my best sits. And, and thinking about some of the camera intel, um, I've had some of the, the best mature deer on their feet in daylight hours then and uh you know there's a couple reasons for that i mean i am hunting a private land piece and you know my my fun in uh, my fun in agriculture i get to plant a lot of food plots and i mean that is freaking huge and i mean i i know like we're in this we're in this uh time frame now where like if you hunt private land and you plant food plots like you're you're nobody uh, like, like that's, that's what's <laughs> happened um, right. Don't get me wrong. I love hunting public land. I mean, Robbie and I, we Sir. we try yeah. to we try to pound public land up in northern Pennsylvania all the time, and we love it. But I mean, uh, it's like, hey, don't hate me, celebrate me, kind of deal. But anyway, I That's mean, right. like that first few weeks, and another thing too, Matt. Like, I'm envious of anybody who's able to do what I'm doing, but they're in a unit in in the state of Pennsylvania that they get to start early. Because, man, I can't tell you how many years the last two weeks of September. Like, I've had daily patterns of mature deer on. Oh, dude! <laughs> and know. sometimes we capitalize on that the first week, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes it That's stops right. like a couple days right before the season. It, I think it depends. You know, there's there's a lot of factors. I mean, sometimes acorn sure. falling when that happens. You know, how good is that that crop? And there, there's so many factors. But I mean, it's like clockwork on some of them deer. We were. We, I had a guy on our podcast earlier today, and we were actually talking about this subject a little bit. Where there was a study they did, uh, it was over 
early season portion of time with with tracking deer and like their actual movements and habitually what they're doing. And uh, they, they showed that if a season came in on a Friday or Saturday, by Monday, Tuesday, those deer were already exhibiting transitions off of their whatever pattern they were doing for the last few weeks and already moving away, just purely based off of that human scent and the hunting pressure coming in just for the first couple of days that it's they're, they're they habitually know. Um, and so I think just getting a jump start on that in, in the earlier you can do that, the earlier that you can get them on their summer feeding patterns, like in September, dude, I would love to go to one of these States where you can go hunt like, uh, uh, velvet deer. Oh my gosh. That would be freaking awesome to get out there in that late August, early September timeframe. Oh my uh, word! Yeah, I was I was looking at like you know amazing. I've seen guys do it in North Dakota, mm-hmm. and, and I've seen yeah, guys it's a do big it, state for that, yeah. right? And I've seen Kentucky. The problem with Kentucky is I freaking hate snakes. <laughs> <laughs> like every, I, I swear, like every video I've seen, like Parker McDonald, he was doing videos and hunting public, like like what is it, the cotton mouths down there that they see, mm-hmm. or the uh, yeah. no, thank you, I'd just rather yeah, no. just hunt the road. Yeah, no thanks. I have a question for you. So would you rather, so let's say you're, you're filling out your license, right? You go, you walk up to the counter, you're buying your hunting license for PA for, uh, 2022, 2023 hunting season. And the guy goes, what are you talking about? They're like new for this year. Uh, we're doing, you either get three doe tags or you get one buck tag. What do you pick? Oh, I know uh, for me, I'd pick a buck tag. Yeah, <laughs> you take the buck tag, right? Yeah, yeah, I'd take the buck buck tag. Uh, now, I I don't. I'm not in the same situation as you guys, where I need to feed as many people because it's just my <laughs> wife and right. I. But right. sure. I think I would definitely just take the buck tag. Because uh, I'm I'm partially like Mitchell. I'm at the point yet where I'm shoot trying to aim for that that trophy buck, mm-hmm. but. Uh, I'd I'd take the buck tag. I I hate to admit it. I think I would take the buck tag too. And I think the reason for it is from my perspective, I, I love the challenge of chasing a mature deer. I truly believe there is not there's there's for me there's no better pinnacle than being able to follow a mature deer knowing that you know four and a half five and a half year old deer that that we're hunting and they get that full age class i mean they've been through the rigmarole of dealing with hunters and uh, to be able to put a, a piece of the puzzle together and put an arrow through one and then step up behind him and hold his rack like i, I can't lie i am definitely a percentage of me is a trophy hunter and and it's because of that 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 chase like like that that drive and like i have that too for um you know, you know for shooting doe but you know i i think this goes back to what makes it fun for you when you're hunting and i and i think if if somebody let, let's flip this around matt and i want to ask you the same question but i'm going to okay. real quick while this is fresh in my mind i i you flip that around and say you can't shoot a buck. You you're forced. You only get to shoot three doe tags. I would need to figure out a different way to make that drive uh, come back for that. Because from my perspective, if I was out taking my rifle, taking my muzzle, maybe not my muzzleloader because that's fun. But let's just stay. Let's just stick an archery for now and take my compound. 
I think I'd get bored. I think it would be yeah, too easy. Because eventually, it, I think you would. Because, I mean, at, at the end of the day, I mean, if a year-and-a-half-old doe comes out, it's a slick head, I'm going to shoot it, and it just gets mm-hmm. to be. Yeah. So I would I would probably find a new challenge. Maybe that would be traditional archery. Maybe that would be bow hunting from the ground more. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, so, maybe find, finding that, you know, matriarchal doe of the of the herd and trying to target her yeah like like pelt pelt one with a paintball gun at some point and monitor for for a cute that's her so so same question that you asked us matt how would you be um i i think if i if i had to make that decision a hundred times if i walked up to the counter a hundred times i think 90 85 or 90 times out of that hundred i think i would take the doe tags i think so and then and and i'm with you guys I, i think i would Eventually, after making that decision year after year after year, I think it, it, a point would be like, man, I, I really, or you might have something great on camera or whatnot. But I think, like you said, that strategy, that chess game with that one tag in your pocket, and I think that just like prolongs the season a little bit unless you, you get after them pretty early in the season. But um, yeah, I think I would miss that cat and mouse game with a big mature buck because I, I do enjoy that. I don't want to, you know, I, I said earlier, I'm not a trophy hunter. I do enjoy having that one or two target bucks a year and you're, you're making specific plays and you're looking for like last year, my, my buck last year, um, I called my shot on a Sunday and I killed him on a Thursday. I told my wife like, Hey, we need to figure out the schedule because with five boys, we have kids in soccer and we're running them all over the County all the time. Mm-hmm. And we actually changed our schedule around because the weather was coming in. The front was perfect. All the conditions said green light. Like it was one of those nights where it's just like drop everything you're going to be in the woods no matter what, like completely change the schedule around my poor wife. She was running kids across, across County and different directions to cover for me because we usually divide and conquer on those nights, but Thursday just lined up and capitalized, you know, he read the script and came right out. Um, and then ambush said it was perfect, but that moment feeling that, I think I would really miss that. I think I would miss that, that opportunity to have that count mouse game it's a fun game but you know what i mean i i say that and at the same time i'm my new kick is i really want to in the state of pennsylvania kill a black bear with my bow oh that'd be sweet and that, that would, would be so that awesome. would probably be my new cat and mouse game in that case i had i had an awesome experience actually it's on our youtube channel um i got surrounded by three bears on the ground in the ghillie suit when i was bow hunting mm. and and these these bears come around and, and one of them was i mean two and a half feet from my broadhead, you know, coming up sniffing me and I'd start yelling at it. And, uh, it was pretty cool, pretty exhilarating, but it was a week, dude, a week before opening day of black bear season, opening up an archery. And, and like, I, I don't, I mean, I, I live in an area that has black bears, um, on, on some of the properties, but it, they're so nomadic. I don't see them all the time. They're not always on my camera. I, I probably get them on camera leading up to season, maybe, five or six times they come through every week or so or every two weeks um and i couldn't tell i can count on one hand how many black bears i've seen while hunting and i had those three surrounding me the week before season the week before opening day of bear and later that night that was a morning hunt i went out and got lunch i went back to the other side of our property i had a, a fourth bear walk 15 yards away broadside and just stand there milling i'm like dude this does never happens 
other than <laughs> like the week before opening day. <laughs> oh, Dude, I would love to kill a Pennsylvania black bear with my bow. I've been there too. Like my uh, my main property that I get to hunt on the private land I was talking about that we did, you know, we do food plots and stuff. It's the same thing. It's a it's a very long ridge and de- and bear. We get them on the camera all the time. I mean, the SOBs pull our cameras down, make it, you know, be a pain with that. Um, we have mock scrapes up at a lot of our tree stand locations. Um, some of them have a, a grapevine. The, the, the freaking things will be, like, chewing on a grapevine and hanging from it. Like, we had, there's one, I swear, the thing was swinging. Like, they're, they're just a pain. So, you get to the point where they get into your skin, you want to kill one. Sure. Um, but, you know, on a serious note, it would be a cool accomplishment to kill a, a Pennsylvania yeah, bear with a bow, awesome. but it's so nomadic the way they travel through there, and there's no consistency. And I've just had that same look. I, I'm I've started to uh, slowly try to hone in on a couple locations where there's higher concentrations of bear, and they actually live. But a lot of the places that I've been picking, of course, are closer to places where we've got a camp and stuff, and it's still just big monotonous timber, yeah. and it's really sure. hard to dissect for a bear. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, to try to get them in bow ranges without drives or without pushing them especially in our country it's just it's tough yeah it's tough tough order to fill it's a way bigger cat and mouse game for sure like was there mm-hmm. was there like just an ample supply of food that you were seeing four bear in a day yeah so no it, it was just random and sporadic they were like nomadically moving through you could tell that they weren't just like milling around and, and hanging out there for the day or for a couple day period of time like they were moving on through the property uh, and we, we had trail cameras up on that property pretty well covered on that on that farm. And, uh, yeah, it's just it's weird. We would get them coming through, and we get them for, like, a four- to five-hour period of time, and then we would see them again for on our cameras for weeks at a time. You know, they just move through the area. But their range is so large. Like, you can't – you look at a couple blocks of timber, and you're like, oh, man, you could hold a lot of bears in here. But they really don't. You know, they're just – their territories are giant. Yeah, it's amazing. Like yeah. when you look at the the harvest map every year in the state, like I think about the the counties that I bear hunt in, and like we've had years where we had great bear hunting, we had years where we had terrible bear hunting. But I know last year, uh, it was a poor year, but there was a section in that county that it was like one township that was like a hot spot where they killed mm. like thirty plus bear, and then the rest Dang. of the county, the rest of the county was like, uh, just slightly below average and it's like yeah there was probably a little bit more something going on up there yeah yeah for sure oh man well hey we've been uh we've been talking uh talking each other's ear off for a while and i could continue <laughs> down talking about bow hunting like i i could have asked you probably a ton more questions about <laughs> sure. traditional archery and i think it's probably just better suited for another time in another place yeah, absolutely um, Matt, any uh, any closing thoughts from anything? We, I mean, we had our, our bow hunting BS session and, and traditional archery. I mean, any closing thoughts for us? Yeah, if you uh, if you have any interest in traditional archery, it's yeah. I, I know the unknown is scary and uncomfortable, but it's not as hard as what the bias is out there in the hunting community. Uh, there are logical ways to step through learning how to shoot these weapons. Uh, there are ways to aim them. There's ways to become very precise and accurate using these bows. And there's a lot of advantage to them, uh, using them in the, in the woods as well. Um, especially for whitetail and close quarters. So, um, don't be afraid to do it. Just, uh, take the dive, take the leap of faith, go for it. And we've talked a little bit tonight about, uh, about your you know youtube channel and some of the stuff where, where can people get a lot of your information social media youtube all that stuff 
Yeah, we've made it pretty easy. So it's the push archery. Um, everywhere, three words. So Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, we film all of our hunts. Uh, it started off with me and my partner filming our hunts uh, on top of all of our instructional videos that we put out there on YouTube. But then over the last few seasons, I think we're coming into season four or five uh, this coming year. Uh, our YouTube video team has grown. So we have uh, bow hunters from around the country uh, submitting footage for our team. Uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, we're putting down 170 inch deer uh, with recurves and stuff. And we usually have a few of those hit the ground every year on the channel. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, I saw some of the videos and let me tell you, they are freaking cool. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, like hats yeah. off to you boys because that is awesome. <laughs> Yeah, really, really cool. Um, I'm not, I'm not one of shooting those, those big ones. <laughs> I'm shooting like uh, it, it's, it's funny because uh, we, we have these, we have booths at these rendezvous and these different like shows uh, during show season. So we'll, we'll set up a booth and everything, and we'll have a big buck pole there where you know a lot of our video content team creators are, are bringing their mounts and we hang them up there. <laughs> and everyone, you know, they're we're looking at. You know, one of our video team members, he has like a 170 and then 193 and a 201 that he's all killed mm, in the free curve in the last in the last five years. Right. This dude's just an absolute killer in Ohio. Uh, and then you have like my partner with his 150 inch deer and his 175 inch deer and like all these bucks. And then you have like my Pennsylvania 120 inch deer <laughs> and, my, and like my 115 up there. It's It's funny to see how much antler is on a 170 inch deer versus like a 115 so but yeah it's really cool we have a lot of awesome content a lot of cool uh, hunts um showing you guys it is possible on our youtube channel again it's the push archery and then the pusharchery.com we make uh we make and manufacture a lot of cool archery products and packs and quivers uh and then we also have on that website serves as a portal to get to our online school so we also um, we're a full turnkey operation. We go out to these coaches, these great minds of traditional archery, uh, and we go out to them and we film and uh, we put together online schools based off of how they teach you to shoot a bow. And then you can pay a one-time fee and you get lifetime access to this instructional online content. So no matter where you live, you can, uh, you can have some of the country's best coaches uh, right there in your living room teaching you how to shoot traditional archery. So, yeah, there's cool. no, no doubt about it. There's a ton of awesome content, whether you are looking for trying to better yourself as a traditional shooter or if you're looking for entertainment. And I'm, I'll be honest with you, every time I've come onto your channel, it's just been entertainment, and it's definitely entertaining. Cool, man. I really appreciate the kind words. It's awesome. Good deal. Matt, uh, appreciate it. Good luck this year in your hunting season. You know, let some arrows fly, let that arrow fly true and, and kill some stuff. And hopefully we can stay in contact and you can show me some hero picks. Yeah, buddy. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yep. Thanks, thanks. Matt.